Welcome to the Green Rush Podcast with Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg. Today, Lewis and Ann speak with Lynn Hondard, CEO and founder of Mary's Medicinals and Mary's Nutritionals. Lynn is one of the most interesting CEOs in the industry, straddling the line between advocacy, professionalism, and Wall Street. She has built a truly inspiring company and one that's on the cutting edge of branding and marketing. To top it off, she's just plain cool. Now, on to the conversation. So thanks for joining us on The Green Rush, Lynn. We're so happy to have you here. Um, you are a true pioneer in the industry and one of the very few women of leadership roles in the cannabis space. Um, but your background is in financial services where you've served in a variety of senior positions within uh, banks like Bank of America and UBS. Um, can you talk a little bit about your cannabis journey and how you made the leap from financial services into cannabis? Sure. First and foremost, thanks for having me. It's great to finally connect with you all. Um, so it's my pleasure. Uh, it, interestingly enough, it wasn't a space that I thought I would get into. Um, with my with the background of what I had um, after I kind of exited the corporate world, um, I did a lot of startups on my own um, and worked with some small companies. Uh, we were sitting in 2012 looking at the landscape of Colorado, looking at the industry going wreck in 2013, and wondering how we could kind of potentially capitalize on it, for lack of better words, and 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 to do something different from what we were doing at the time. Um, we had worked with a company that uh, had made patches in the past, um, not cannabis related, um, but vitamin related. And we thought, well, this is interesting. Um, and we thought, let's let's R&D this and let's look at uh, what we can put into the marketplace, um, really from the perspective of being the adult in the room. When you looked at the marketplace, especially back then, which to all of us seems like 40 years ago, but it was, you know, only five, um, you looked at what was out there and I, I noticed that there wasn't an adult. There wasn't anybody that really brought um, the true meaning of the plant to, to the patients. Um, and we took a, a, an approach that was very new and revolutionary at the time, which was uh, adhering to four key pillars of accurately dosed, discrete use, um, pharmaceutical grade delivery mechanisms, and a patient first mentality. And by holding true to those four key pillars, we were really um, able to kind of change the landscape of the the use of cannabis um, and, and the conversations that surround it. So it was uh, very different. Didn't think we'd be in it. It would be remiss of me to say I wasn't interested in the capitalist side of it because obviously there's um, there was, you know, everybody speaks of this green rush, for lack of better words. But at the same time, it was also about bringing uh, an adult into the marketplace that really cared about the patients and the experience that the patients were having. It seems like a very uh, pharmaceutical biotech approach. Um, would you align yourself kind of with that thinking? Um, a little bit, I think so. I, back at the in the very in the early stages of the organization, yes. I, again, it was you know what's a discreet way to use cannabis that isn't you know pulling out a bong or using a joint or mm -hmm. eating a gummy. Um, it's we've morphed out of that a little bit but still truly adhere to kind of those four key pillars um, that we started with as an organization. So you, you talk about the professionalization, the the adult in the room, mm -hmm. um, and there mm -hmm. there is this 
seemingly underlying tension between the historic mm -hmm. advocates and you know the black market participants who are moving from you know into the gray now the green market and and people like you you know the the quote sure. unquote suits but i think one of the things in my learning about your company is that there is a real underlying um, sense of corporate and social responsibilities to Mary's. Mm -hmm. Can you mm -hmm. talk about that, please? Because I don't think people understand how deeply embedded CSR is to to your corporate corporate ethic. Sure, and it really is. Um, there's a fine balance, especially in this industry, and um, of of really listening to the people that brought this movement to the forefront, but then also looking at it as an adult and saying, okay, we have this industry. It's been it's been illegal and technically still is, but now we're trying to regulate it and and bring good medicine to the people who need it. And so from our perspective, the co corporate responsibility really starts with an education component. Um, when we launched Mary's and still to this day, we're not sales members or sales teams, we're educators. And the responsibility from our part is to put high quality tested product into the marketplace. Um, we, we started that um, by being one of the very first companies within Colorado to actually have an in-house testing machine and testing machines within all of the facilities that we now operate in 12 different states. Um, it, so it's high quality, good product into the marketplace, an accurately dosed product into the marketplace. And then the third is educating the patient on the benefits. There was, especially back then when we started there, and as we expand into new states that aren't, you know, coast, coast side states that really don't know a lot about cannabis still, the education component is huge because we still are battling a lot of um, naysayers and, and people who don't view the plant for the benefits that, that they should be. Um, so how we project that um, throughout Mary's on both sides of the spectrum is by education. We support Americans for Safe Access. Um, we do YouTube chimes that help promote cannabis in general, not just Mary's products. Um, we give money um, and donate to organizations like the Realm of Caring who help advocate for patients um, and really and really take responsibility that it's education first. And with that education, we'll change the conversation. So your website has some amazing stories from patients and, um, it, I mean, all of them are very powerful and emotional. Are you finding that to be helpful in telling your story? I mean, as, as marketers and, and as communicators, we are always charged with, you know, telling great stories and making sure that there's a face and a name, mm -hmm. um, you know, associated with that. Do you find that that's resonating with certain segments of the population, like, you know, like older people who might be, you know, suffering from rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, I guess, how are, how are those stories impacting your, both your marketing and your product R and D? Uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, marketing is a little tricky. As we all know, we can't say what, what the product's good for on a mass market scale. And so that makes it really difficult. So by having um, stories, by having stories of people and truly um, letting them tell the story on the benefit of the plant um, helps us because we're not going out saying what the benefit's for because we can't. So by having patients do that, it definitely helps um, promote the, the product and cannabis in general. Um, when it comes to um, product development, 
unequivocally without any question, it makes all of the difference what our patients say and the feedback that they have for us. You know, we deal with um, a, a wide variety of patients and I can give you a quick story. The, the reason we did our transdermal pat or excuse me, our transdermal gel pen as our second product was as we started looking at patients who were using our patch, we noticed two things. One, there was a lot of children who were using it and the feedback we got from from their caregivers was that they didn't like to wear a patch and two it wasn't dosed small enough yet for them so we listened to that feedback and then we pivot on the type of um, product that we're going to put out to the marketplace and we do that still today so you guys have a, a really beautiful brand and i think you have a clear brand story and i actually i first encountered you guys um in telluride like three or so, three or four years ago. Um, I tried to transdermal patch. I thought it was really interesting, but I loved the the story, the look, the feel, everything behind it. You know, there is this oddly regulated nature to the industry where you can't really move plant or money cross state lines, but you're now mm -hmm. in 11 states. Can you talk about the challenges that you faced in actually trying to build out a national brand? Sure. Um, it's, it's not been easy, um, to say the least. Uh, challenging in that you have to have experts within each individual state. So we recognized that getting a consistent brand out into the marketplace um, was something we wanted to do from day one. Um, and the importance of that is that people could have the same experience, whether they were purchasing a product in Oregon or purchasing a product in Vermont. Um, repeatable, um, consistent product was a necessity. Uh, Mary's is very fortunate in that um, the ability to make our product suite is scalable. A lot of organizations, I think, out there don't have the ability to look at the market size of each individual state and recognize that they could still make the same quality product just on a smaller scale or, in some cases, a larger scale. So for us in particular, it was it was very, um, A, convenient and awesome, for lack of better words, to have a scalable product suite. Um, when you start diving into the nuances of each individual, individual state, um, it's definitely cumbersome. Um, where some states we could go in as our own, as Mary's all on our own with our own licensure. Other states we had to partner um, and find the right partner. And with so many different actors entering the space, that vetting process can take a lot of time. Um, obviously mistakes have been made and you, you do your best to, to rectify those and, and move forward. Um, so it's not, it's not an easy feat. Um, but I, I look at market size first within the state that we're going into and then look at the operators that are there and, and make sure that we're partnering with the right group um, to bring the consistent product that we want to the marketplace. So you talk about some mistakes that, that you've made. Um, and, and as an entrepreneur, I, I have to imagine um, that's just part of the gig. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so can you, is there one that you look back on and you're just like, holy crap, I can't believe I survived that? Or or what was a, a key learning that you may have taken from that mistake um, and sure. applied it to the future success, uh, a future sure. success? Sure. I think one in particular was um, the first, the second state we launched into um, after Colorado. Um, we thought the structure um, for how we set up that state was was ideal in that it was a, a loose licensing agreement. We would we would provide the IP, we would provide the technology, we would provide the know-how, but rely on the the partnership that we um, went the, the partnership that we had to produce, manufacture, and then this was the kicker to sell. Um, and so what inevitably happened is that as that partner grew into more product suites outside of Mary's, you know, they had their own product suite as well. 
um, the ability to sell both products um, was diminishing. And, and that's human nature. And I get that. You know, the capitalist in me says that's human nature. If you have the opportunity to make 100% off of a product you sell or, or 20% or 30%, you inevitably gravitate towards selling that 100% profit margin product, right? And so what we recognized from that was twofold. One, um, the revenue wasn't what we thought it was going to be based off of that. But two, and more importantly, and that goes back to the founding reason of who we are and what we do, was the, the sales approach was was not what we were controlling. And that was that was unfortunate because we had and still do have such a unique sales approach and that we're educators and not salespeople. And so to me, it was extraordinarily important that the the, the sales staff educates first and moves product based off of education instead of based off of sales. And the only way we could control that is by controlling our sales and the manufacturing and the product development. So after we learned um, that lesson um, and a lot of, a lot of um, back and forth on, on um, adjusting that agreement for lack of better words, as we looked into new States and as we go into new States now um, we we've flipped that model um, and we come in and handle the product, um, production, manufacturing, and sales aspect of it. So IP in cannabis is tough. You, you it can't, is. You can't trademark. Um, well, you but can. You can. You just have to do it. You have to be. Um, you have to be sly, for lack of better words. You can okay. trade. Like we've trademarked Marys, but we sell it on T-shirts. We sell it on coffee cups. We sell it on hats. We sell it on product, not actually on cannabis. Well, so talk about the patenting side because I know you guys have patents and and there's not many that do in cannabis. So can you talk about that? I can talk about it a little bit. I'll I'll be the first to tell you um, I surround myself with with experts and I know what I don't know. Um, (laughs) So let me (laughs) – I I will speak on it on on a very high level Um, and maybe it's a later conversation for our patent attorney. Um, Yes, we do have – we were issued one patent for a transdermal gel plan. Um, it was revolutionary at the time. We were so excited to get it. We honestly didn't think we would. Um, and it was awarded to us for formulation, which was huge. Um, and I think we were probably one of the first kind of into, in the market selling a, a cannabis product to have a patent on a product. Um, it was arduous and it was long and it took a lot of um, R&D and a lot of uh, you know time, talent, and treasure um, to secure that. But it was it was one of the the... the key things that I look at that's one of our biggest successes was being able to secure that. The other one that we have um, and it's pending is our patch patent. And so um, that's pending in a, in a formulation and actual um, manufacturing um, makeup as well. So we're still in the process of that. Uh, it takes a lot of capital to do patents, just like it takes a lot of capital to do um, studies and R&D, um, but it's, it's worth it. Um, especially in the space and and continuing to um, to seek new patents on whether it's formulations or actual product is something that is um, on the top of our list. So IP, uh, R&D, patents, all this stuff that costs a lot of money. Um, it does. Uh, we met at the Cowan Investment Conference back in we Los did. Angeles. We did. Um, we I did. saw you. I saw you on a panel uh, and was really blown away. Um, but you were at an investment bank conference. Thank Can you. you talk about what your your um, your capital markets plans? You're going to go public anytime soon? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if we're going to go public anytime soon. Um, it's a natural fit for for our organization and others. Obviously, as you saw, there were a ton of organizations out there. Um, you know, looking at the at the space and, and wanting to invest in it. And so it's kind of a natural progression. I think it feels natural for me as well, because my background is in that. 
Um, as far as capital needs go, we, we're, we're always interested and we're always, you know, potentially looking for, for partnerships. For us in particular, it's finding a, a, the right partnership, right? And it's finding somebody that strategically aligns with our thinking and, and where our growth strategy is going forward for the next three to five years. I don't rule out lots of different things, but I think the federal federal regulation is going to um, federal landscape is going to uh, play into what avenue we decide to go. Whether that's an IPO in the states, IPO in Canada, a buyout by alcohol, tobacco, big pharma, or another cannabis company, um, the options are out there on the table. And what's very exciting, I think, um, from my perspective, is that um, in the infancy of cannabis, and it really wasn't the infancy, but mainstream infancy that Colorado kind of led the charge on and seeing it grow over the course of the five years and who's actually coming out to listen to cannabis companies and to see the change in cannabis companies and, and real dollars coming into the space is, is exciting um, because it definitely continues to help um, help put the mature adult in the room and, and help make it a, a, a legal growing business. Now the nuances behind how that all works out, I'll leave to the experts. <laughs> well, actually, so what are your old bank of America, UBS, Payne Weber colleagues say about your career transition? Are they, are they, you know, <laughs> writing checks or are they kind of saying, you know, I uh, pass that it. joint over here. Uh, are you good <laughs> right, right. There you go. Like, hey, what do you have that'll help? No. Um, and I, I'm not saying, I'm not speaking from, um, you know, anyone in particular person. I'll speak from it from a, a general standpoint of the marketplace. Um, it's a combination of both. Two years ago when I spoke at the first Cowan conference in Washington, um, it was just a lot of um, family office, and it was a lot of people, you know, from big names like Fidelity and Maxwell and American Century coming and just listening and really trying to get a better understanding of the market. You know, fast forward a year um, in, in New York, it's a much larger event. You know, a Vivian Azer of Cowan puts on these phenomenal events and, you know, it has really taken charge um, in, in bringing capital to these markets. And then you know, I think this year in particular, um, there are more companies um, from the financial side putting dollars where their where their mouth was. The interest is there, and the interest has been substantiated. The growth has been substantiated, so I think you're seeing more dollars come in. Um, interestingly enough, I think one of the th things that have opened those doors a little bit, obviously, was Constellation Brands. Um, you know, they uh, they do. Um, alcohol beverages they bought a big stake in canopy and that showed look at there's a there's a, a financial you know a, a, a tried and true publicly traded company in the u.s making a, a major financial investment into a cannabis space and so i think that's going to continue to things like that will continue to help open the doors for um, capital to be brought into the cannabis space at, at a more easily basis all that said until regulation happens from a federal level in some form or fashion, I still think it'll be a lot more difficult um, than not. My father-in-law is in his 80s and he has back pain. And I was in California not so long ago and I picked up one of your uh, your gel pens. Um, it was the CBD THC mix and I gave it to him. This guy has never smoked a joint. He's never eaten an edible. He never thought about it, but he was in pain. And I, I gave him the pen and his, his wife applied it. And literally after one application, he was pain free, which is, speaks both to your formulation, but also to the plant. Uh, but the amazing thing was he immediately went out to all of his cronies and starts raving about 
the use of cannabis. Right. How are your customers discovering you? How, you know, how are they finding your products? Because you can't advertise. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, where's that? Can you talk about that discovery process? It, it truly is what you just said. It's word of mouth. Um, you, you, we can advertise a little bit. We just can't advertise the benefits of it, right? So we get creative. It's it's word of mouth. It's education. It's We go, um, we have a brand ambassador down in Florida um, who goes and talks to retirement homes. We have um, brand ambassadors who go out and talk to different um, different avenues that otherwise not known to cannabis um, and really kind of change the conversation of the use of cannabis from from people who view it as a reactive or less less you know ditch approach to a proactive um, use of of medicine um, and it's from all walks of life it's like you said it's a it's an 80 year old dad who has rheumatoid arthritis or back pain to a two-year-old child who has um, epilepsy. And we have a big uh, social media presence and we really try to foster um, group forum chats and we try to foster blogs and we try to foster different people talking to each other. Um, but that's really, it's, it's word of mouth and it's, it's a solid product and people can trust it and use it and get results from it. And Can I just want talk? mine back, by the way, from my father-in-law because he still hasn't given it back yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll have to we'll have to make sure he gets another one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but from a, a product standpoint, what are some of your best sellers, and and are you able to tell who is buying? Sure. Um, our patch is still our number one seller. Um, which is really exciting. Um, we do offer it in a couple of different cannabinoid forms. So it's not just THC or CBD. Um, and then outside of that are two other products that are th the best that everybody's kind of chatting about are um, our remedy oil, which is our tincture and our muscle freeze. Everybody loves the muscle freeze and the muscle freeze is for everybody. And I, and when I say everybody, I truly mean it. I mean, we have, um, you know, we have, uh, 21 year old kids I call them kids so I guess that's telling you my age 21 year old kids that are using I, I it call them kids too so all right good all right that are using it after they work out um, to help alleviate sore muscles to the doctor of the um, golf channel um, we were at the PGA golf um, uh, show a couple months back in Florida and he did an entire segment on the golf channel about our product suite and and really saying this this works this is why it works and this is how great it is um, so it's it's everything from like I said 21 old kids to um, retired golfers in Florida to we have a line of our nutritional products in um, a major hotel spas chain across the country. So it, it, the demographic is large and vast, um, which is exciting, but also makes it kind of difficult when we start talking about market studies and what product to put out. <laughs> um, but they are um, everybody, everybody, whether you're two to 92, everybody's Mary. Mm. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. So, uh, we, at the end of every show, we ask our uh, guests to tell us two things they love about the cannabis industry and one thing they hate. And we call it puff, puff, pass. Cause we're cheeky like that. So Lynn puff, puff, pass. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Can I caveat yeah. it really quick before I tell yeah. you, do I get to explain why after I tell you or no? Totally. Okay. Yeah, this is your time. Yeah. All right. Ready? So my two puffs. Oh gosh. Um, altruism and capitalism and my pass would be taxes 280 huh. taxes 
So what I mean by that is I've worked in a ton of different industries um, or I've worked with a ton of different industries in my financial career, bringing different companies public. Um, And I I say this often and I truly mean it. This is one industry um, that I work in that I really feel strongly that altruism and capitalism coexist. And it's very important that they coexist in this industry because you cannot forget the people who paved the way to get us to where we are and and really rely on what they've done for the movement of the plant and the benefits of the plant. I mean, it's so important to remember that. But, but you also can't negate the, the suits, for lack of better words, that come in and take it to the next level of being a truly regulated, well thought, thought out, well um you know, run business-minded acumen industry. So that's why I think um, capitalism and altruism are are exciting, um, and are my two puffs. And then 280E. I mean, if you if I mean that's for a whole nother segment. That just stinks because what 280E does is it just um, it dampens the ability to continue to grow this sector, whether that's bringing new people in into the to the job force, um, and more importantly, getting medicine out to the people who need it. You know, in the 30 or so guests that we've had, everybody hates taxes and it's been no one's pass. Really? Yes, am I wrong? No, nobody yeah. has mentioned 280E <laughs> once in any, in really, and maybe it's because we haven't asked about it, but okay. it, you're That's- spot on. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't help us grow. I mean, I love the fact that we're this business that grew from three employees to over 60 um, and I think without the 280E consequence, we could be at 120 employees. And so it's just, you know, that it, hopefully that'll get ironed out here in the future. Great. So, well, oh, sorry, Lewis, go ahead. No, no, all you. <laughs> so what have we missed? I mean, we're, we're about out of time and we know we want to be mindful of your time, but is there anything that we've missed that you wanted to touch on? I don't think so. Thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity. Um, we love what we do at Mary's. We're passionate about it. And we're passionate about the people. And I think that's what makes us all kind of tick here is, is we, uh, we care about the people who use our products. And that wraps up another episode of the Green Rush podcast with Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg, who spoke today with Lynn Hondard, CEO and founder of Mary's Medicinals and Mary's Nutritionals, which you can learn more about over at marysmedicinals.com and marysnutritionals.com. You can find and subscribe to the Green Rush on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find good podcasts. Follow the Green Rush on Instagram and Twitter at KCSA underscore cannabis. And of course, you can visit our website over at greenrushpodcast.net. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on The Green Rush.